Hello and welcome to the Cinemondo Podcast with Kathy, Mark, and Burke talking about movies. Horror, sci-fi, unusual, unknown, forgotten, underappreciated, old, new, always interesting. We're going to talk about some really cool movies today. Um, some film noir stuff. Are they colorized? No, they're not colorized. <laughs> oh, oh, they haven't gosh. even been colorized? Not that I know uh, of. Ted Turner didn't colorize those in the 80s? I would find that hard to believe. the 90s? No, I hope not. Because <laughs> these, <are, laughs> these movies are just perfect the way they are. But um, we were talking earlier, um, and, and uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, viewers, listeners out there, uh, the reason we are starting the show a little bit later today <laughs> is because Mark was late. He, again. Um, no. My <laughs> apologies. Well, here, yeah. here's the story. I was late because uh, my wife dropped me off in the Chevy Volt. And, but I was driving. So she, she goes, all right, see you later. Have fun. I walk, and she drives off. And then you know, I'm babbling here with Kathy and Burke, and, and uh, I missed like five calls, by the way. <laughs> and then I looked at my phone, and there were like three or four tests. That's Call me. Like, Who died? Emergency. <laughs> Call me. Emergency. Oh, my uh, and my heart sunk. And so I oh. called her back, and she was just down the road a couple of miles at a coffee shop, and she couldn't turn the car off because I had the keys. Oh. So the car, the, the keyless car thing, you know, like oh. it's just, it's just a, it's, it's weird that that happens. I've done yeah. that at valets where I forget to give them the key, yes. and then when I show up for my car, they go, "We don't have the key," because they're yeah. able to park it, they can but park then they it, can't yeah. start it. Right. But, but also, like you, you said, your car has like if it gets out of like what a hundred yards or something, it beeps. Yeah, yeah it That's starts warning you, you know, that you, that there's no key if you yeah. try and get too far. Yeah, no. My, and then the idea doesn't. of leaving a key in the in the glove compartment sets you up for a Mister Mercedes incident. <laughs> Yeah, so it's just like the the good old days of putting it in, yeah. turning it on, and going. And needing to have the key in in the keyhole in the car, yeah. And so you anyway. don't think about the keys anymore because they're usually just like in your wallet or your purse. Or, yeah, you don't so even you have don't to. Really, you don't even really need it. And anyway, so. Uh, but that struck me as a situation that could lead itself to a type of predicament that you sometimes see in film noir movies. Where a little a little thing trips you up, you know. You have all these big plans, the heist. You know, they the guys all get together and they make the big plans and they think what could go wrong and they they cover all the bases and they feel like they got everything covered. Nothing can go wrong, and then some little thing like, oh, I forgot to give them the keys. Yeah, it's like, oh, I have the keys, but I'm in the bank, so yeah. now my car can. Kind of, I, I, it, would it would be cool if you were ready to get away with the money and mm-hmm. the car just doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Because, the, because your partner is, you know, skedaddling in a and, motorcycle down the road. And they have the keys and you're stuck. That's the end of your plan. Your, yeah. your plan is ruined. Well, you know, always these plans, the perfect plans, never go right. We've talked about this before. Well, they the probably, the thing about film noir movies is I always have a feeling that with the film noir movies about these heists that go wrong, there has to be a million other heists that went right that just weren't that weren't interesting because they didn't get movies made about them but there'd be no money in banks if they all went right <laughs> <laughs> and then why would you even use banks anymore at that point yeah. well i think the chutzpah you know uh, to yeah. use an old word uh, of, uh <laughs> i'm sorry were you 80 <laughs> uh, well we're talking right. about old movies so it's okay chutzpah and sk- right. 23 skidoo uh is that you um you have this you think okay everything i have everything covered yeah. But of course you don't. No, there's always the X factor. And it's like, it's one of those things I love seeing these kind of heist movies because you see them and you're like, this could work. But then you know if one thing doesn't go exactly the way it's supposed to, that the entire thing falls apart. Because they think that they're smarter than they really are. Yeah. Especially in the second movie we're going to talk about. When you can't uh, yeah. count on the X factor. Like, it takes like a little bit longer or it's a little bit louder or like these little weird things you're not totally sure about. Like, I love the ones that are like, we're going to spend two minutes here, and then at 30 right. seconds, we're going to be here. It's like mm-hmm. these, like, you know, scheduled down to the seconds, and it's, people are always late. And Louie's going to be waiting by the door. That's right. And he's got to be there at 12.14. But Louie had to take a piss, so he's, like, yeah. around the corner for an extra 30 <laughs> seconds. Or Louie's, something, something happened with Louie's friend who came by at the wrong time and knocked on the door. So Louie had to go, and he's like... Listen, buddy, I got to go. I got to go. I can't stand here talking to you. And it's like, what's going on? And you're like, <laughs> oh. And the, there's the tension, the ratcheting tension and the suspense. And the the um, the two films we're going to talk about today have directors who are just masters at that stuff. One of them is actually more, I think, more a master of the suspense and the storytelling. 
Another, the other one is a master of construction, of, of putting the pieces of a, of a movie together into something that's compelling v- visually and cleverly like a, mach- like a really well-operating machine. Um, the first director that we're going to talk about is John Huston, who, if you've never, you know, if you're not familiar with John Huston, Shame on you. you need to get familiar with him because <laughs> he's like one of the guys who sort of invented what we think of as modern films. And, and he's done so many iconic, like just super famous films that you're probably like, oh, he did that. And just a master of storytelling with a camera. Like, where do you aim the camera? A lot, a lot of people, when you see a film, a lot of people feel, I imagine, because I do sometimes, that this film was just just happened. It just appeared out of nowhere to tell me this story. You really don't think too much about the people who made the film. And actually, somebody had to figure out where to put the camera. And when you're going to show this character talking, somebody had to decide where to shoot them from. Like what angle? Where Low, high, bright lights, quiet, you know, loud, noisy, shiny, you know. They had to make decisions about everything, and all of those decisions matter in how the story is perceived by the people watching the movie. And John Huston is just so—I mean, he covers everything. He's one of these people like like Billy Wilder is another one who just really understands the language of motion pictures. Well, it's funny he used to be a painter, I guess, back in his, the early days, like a painter in Paris. And yeah. that one of the reasons I think his films are so. So masterful that way is he would sketch out like how the scene should look because he has that background as an yeah. artist. Yeah, storyboards. Well, his first movie was The Maltese Falcon. And first that's not movie. a bad way to start out. First. Then, uh, then, you know, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Which is, is another, another classic. Uh, Key Largo. Another classic. Um, Red Badge of Courage, The African <laughs> yep. Queen. Uh you know, Moby Dick, heaven knows Mr. Allison. I mean, that's an insane, just one of those movies would be enough to make you a classic director. The Misfits, which is a super underrated Misfits. We we could do a whole episode on the Misfits. I love that movie so much. And even uh, later in life, you know, he had like a Pritzi's Honor, which was, uh, you know, and then his last film was the dead. He passed away like in 1987. Anyway, obviously a, a, you know, a giant, but one of his movies, I think it's 1950. Yep. Um, called The Asphalt Jungle is one we're going to talk about today, which is a, I think it's a film noir movie. Um, takes play, it, it, there's, there's some rules that we always talk about. Like, what are the rules of film noir? What is a film noir movie? What, is, what does it consist of? Why is it Black called that? Black and white. Uh, but then Chinatown could be considered film noir. It's not just black and white. <laughs> and color. Yeah, <laughs> black and white and color. But what is it that makes those dark? I mean, it's you know, noir is darkness, and so dark. Like, is it a sense of darkness to the film? Should it have like a crime element? Yeah, there's always characters that you know they're just on the teetering on this you know the wrong side of the law. Yeah, and in this film, this is about this is one of the original heist films. Yeah, this is not only the heist. But it's the preparation of the heist. It's really like three separate films. It's a procedural heist yeah, film. It's like yep. prepping the heist, getting the guys together, figuring out how they're going to do it. Then there's the actual heist, which is like 11 minutes in the middle of the movie. It's just like, here's the heist in real yeah. time. Yeah. And then the ending, the climax, is the post-heist. What yeah. happens afterwards. Yeah, when you leave so, the keys in your pocket yeah. for the keyless car, and, and then, then the guy com- can't get away. And you have to go to Kumquat Coffee, get yeah. a latte. <laughs> Imagine John Houston going to come quite coffee. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking shoot me. He would get coffee black. He said, I just get a regular coffee, please? <laughs> so fuck is are you come quite this fucking coffee? An American <laughs> cup of coffee. That's all I want. So so I really like the fact that it's mm-hmm. sort of three separate things. Usually at some heist movies, the heist is sort of the, you know, it's the it's the climax of the movie. And there might be a little bit of a coda. But this one is there's the heist and what happens after the heist? Yeah. How do they get caught? Do they get caught? What happens to the characters? It's also a very realistic movie. The characters in it are... You get a sense that these people know know how to plan a heist. You know, the, I mean, the premise of the film is basically this old guy, old crooked guy, gets released from prison and sort of evades his... Uh, his uh, the, the police that were supposed to follow him because they kind of didn't trust him, but they had to let him out. He goes... And, of course, the first thing he does is he goes and gets back together with his 
with his old criminal friends and says, hey, guys, I got this job. Got this great idea. The perfect plan. <laughs> and he's, I get a he's, sense that he might have been like, I don't know why I think this, because 1950, he was a German character. I think his name, like he might have mm. been a Nazi or somebody that was escaping oh, yeah. uh, Nazi Germany in World War II and coming yeah. over here. I don't and know. I got later he kind of connects with the German cab driver right. in that scene. But right. he's he's a very proper older older guy that they call the Doc. They call him Doc, right? And uh, he's he's such a great character. There's so many levels to this character. He's he's a little obsessed with certain things, but he has this um, plan for the heist. And the cool thing about this movie is he's got it worked out. He knows he knows how to do a robbery, and he's saying, "Okay, we're going to need this much money." We're going to need a guy who can do this. We're going to need a guy who can do this. We're going to need a guy who can do this. So well, I love we need... what he calls him, though. Like, he needs a box man. A like, box he's man. The safe guy. Yeah. He needs a, a hooligan. A hooligan. <laughs> like, what? Why would you ever need a hooligan? I mean, it seems like you could get someone else for that role. I don't and know. speaking of hooligans, <laughs> another thread in today's two movies, um, besides them being film noir, heist films, is an actor that we want to we want to draw a lot of attention to because one of my favorite actors been in some of some of these incredible movies that we talk about a lot here um, Sterling Hayden and yeah. he is just great in both of these films but he is the hooligan in Asphalt Jungle he's like this boy is he ever and his name is Dix yeah Dix <laughs> Dix that's a great yeah D I X and the first yeah. time first time we see him he's like getting away from some petty little you know, knocking over a liquor store or something. And he goes to do a lineup. And, for, and poor Frank Cady, the guy who used to play Mr. Drucker on Petticoat Junction, <laughs> oh, yeah, right. is the store owner who has to identify him. And one of the first times we see a really good shot of Sterling Hayden is in a lineup, and he's just glaring at little Frank Cady, who's trembling. You know who's another one in the lineup? Do you know that middle <laughs> The act? second guy, who's yeah. Strother Martin. Strother Martin. Oh, that's yeah. Who, like, who, every time I see this movie, I'm like, oh, it's Strother Martin. Yeah. <laughs> he's going to be great, but he's not in the movie. Yeah. And <laughs> Jack just, Warden is also in there. Jack Warden. As an uncre- just hilarious. like a, kind of an extra one of their early roles, obviously. That's but really Strother Martin is so great in it because he does one little thing where he touches his neck, and it's like, so great. You know? <laughs> but that's it. <laughs> oh. But but that first shot of uh, Sterling Hayden in the lineup where he it's like one of the most intimidating glare faces you'll ever see. He's an intimidating looking guy. He seems like a big dude. He's a got big, this kind of like, you know, just just this barreling voice. You know? And in this movie he does that voice. It's yeah. like this shouting, blaring voice. He doesn't do it as much in his other films, but in this one he's like, Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and he, he's supposed to be a southern guy, so he has a little bit of a southern flavor to his to his voice but he in t- just with that look he he scares little frank katie into saying oh i don't see him <laughs> hey he's not the guy and the cop sitting next to him is like oh come on he's standing right there <laughs> and so uh, doc is trying to raise money to yes. pay these hooligans well right. hooligan box man and driver and the driver, driver who's but they're got- talking to a rich lawyer yeah is that or he's the lawyer he's a crooked lawyer he's a lawyer who represents criminals and so, you Lewis know, he's kind of like, like the yes. Better Call Saul kind of a lawyer. Right. But yeah, Lewis Calhoun, who is so great in this, he's this very dignified guy, but he... He looks he, like he's always wearing a tux. Right. Like, no matter where he is. He's, you know, he, he's an older guy, but, you know, truth be told, he's like younger than me. Yes. Yeah. Which is so sad. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that old. People uh, looked older then. Yeah, yeah, they did. But, and of course, you know, he's he's married, but his wife is bedridden. So he has yeah. this sort of like, he lives in this big house. You think he's ultra rich and he's got this cute gal. Cute little piece on the side. Cute. Played by some at- some little actress. Unknown. Yeah. Um, and what what is she, what does he call her? Like you are, he's looking at it's Marilyn Monroe in yeah. one of her <laughs> earliest roles, and she looks incredible. So cute. He says something like, "Oh, you're a, what was it? she calls him?" Uh, would watch her as she's walking away, and would say, you know, very leeringly, "Some sweet kid." So the so, fact that he would say that and then she calls him uncle, it's like, uncle what is happening? Yeah. She's jumping into his lap and you're like, I'm getting creeped out. And she's so naive in the, you know, the like that scene where she, where the cops are questioning her and he, he basically tells her, well, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but 
he tells her just tell the truth, but he doesn't. Un- she doesn't seem to understand what he means by that. Yeah. So she actually does tell the truth. You know, I love it too. Cause you see characters like this with Marilyn Monroe, and I feel like all she does character is sit in that living room. Right, like that's her entire existence is just sitting around in that living room. You never get the sense she has a life outside of that living room. She's taken care of. You know, she's yep. one of these. She's part of the furniture. Yeah. Part of the house. But there's a lot of those. I feel like in some film noir, there's like these femme fatales who basically exist just in a single room and that they, you know, exist to like bounce off the, the man, whether it's the dialogue or, you know, whatever it is they're trying to do with the plot. But I feel like they only have a life inside that that construct. Definitely she does. I mean, there's yeah. another female character, uh, you know, played by Jean Hagen, who is sort of like the sad sort of. Uh, Burke, you said that she might be uh, like a prostitute in this? I think she or, was maybe a stripper because there was okay. something about a, the reason she needed a place to stay. Um, she she talks about there was a raid somewhere, so okay. she works at a pl- an illegal place, you right. know. And uh, then she says something about a friend who was a dancer or something like that. I think it's implied that she's a she's an exotic dancer or whatever. And she loves dicks, uh, yeah. obviously. And he, he doesn't have <laughs> <laughs> she loves dicks. <laughs> That's gonna be the, the title of this podcast. But she also really is fond of the character played by uh, Sterling Hayden. <laughs> oh God! And the uh, the you know the the whole point of <laughs> Sterling Hayden's character <laughs> is he's such a loud, blaring jerk. But the great thing about the movie is that there's no there's no two dimensional characters in here. Everybody's got something else going on inside them, you know. And for all of his hooliganness, Sterling Hayden is a really sad character because he had a horrible childhood. He talks at one point about losing this farm and this horse that he used to have that he was in love with this horse. And it's sad because all he really wants to do is buy back his childhood. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just funny because he's this big, loud, boisterous, like tough guy. But he had one of the most sentimental yeah. motivations in the whole thing to get the money. He was also the guy who he and Doll at the you know in one scene in the movie she the you know Doc says hey, you can keep that diamond if you want it. And she's like, oh no, thank you. And Sterling, and he says, "I'm going to need a thousand dollars to get away." And Sterling Hayden is like, "All right, here's a thousand bucks." He's he was like the most generous character mm-hmm. in the movie yeah. too. He wasn't. Yeah. He gives people money. He helps people when he can. He pays people back. Remember the very beginning. The whole point is he wants to pay this guy Cobby back. You know, so Sterling Hayden is actually the 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 guy with the biggest heart. You know, I know, and he's like the biggest bully. Yeah. But all the all everybody has a motive to to want to do this yeah. heist. I mean, the safe crack the safe cracker is like a family man, right? He, right. So he cares about his wife, and just you know, he needs to make more money. Uh, James Whitmore plays uh, Gus, who is the uh, the bartender who people will know from uh, later in life from uh, the Shawshank Redemption. He yeah, was Brooks. You know, right. Um, Such a great career that guy. Yeah, and. Uh, he was just kind of a tough guy too. I can't remember what his motive was actually, but he was there was something there for him, you know. Yeah. Uh, but everybody's a well-rounded character, you know. Everybody yeah, even the like small a, characters are very vivid. They yes. all have a bit of a backstory. You know, Gus, you're talking about the diner guy. He's he has a he's kind of hunched over. He's kind of a hunchback. He's and a hunchback. Yeah. There's one scene where you know the the wife of the getaway driver is so angry at him. She says, "You know, you cripple, you hunchback," and and. Uh, he goes over to the window and he looks out and and you get this sense of history with him mm-hmm. where he's he turns around and he goes nobody talks to me like that and yeah. and it, it hurts him it hurt him yeah. right. even though he's this big tough guy you know he's still got this weakness you know and there's another character a Kabi, who is sort of like uh sort of the guy that sort of is the central to bringing everybody together and he's played by Mark Lawrence, who yeah. you might know, not know the name, but you'll certainly know the face. Yeah. You know, he's been in tons, always playing that kind of character, yeah. you know. It's true. And this one, he's sort of like sweaty and he's yeah. all nervous. He's, Why did I get involved in this? You know, he's... Classic uh, film noir ne- weasel. Yeah, yeah. And he's, yeah, the sweat and... And he he has one of those great scenes where he's he's saying you know I'm not I won't uh, I won't break I won't break and then the cop slaps him around and he starts crying yeah. and the cop tells him yeah see how easy you break yeah, yeah. 
So this it's this great setup, and there's a, the great actual heist, and then the ending of the film is like what happens, and that's really kind of really incredibly well written. Yeah. You know, how well, it goes I like down. too. It, like everything during the heist that they plan so carefully, there's always one little thing that that went awry. Like when they use the the soup, you which know, they call like the explosive. nitroglycerin or whatever. Where's yeah. the soup? They kept saying, "Bring the soup." Yeah. Um, it blows up really loud and sets off all these alarms. Yes. Like it was bigger than they thought, so that starts a whole other like I, know, I, avalanche I, of misfires. It's a per- it's a perfect little thing because you don't expect that because you got the guy looking out the window. He's the watch out guy, and they, they there's this explosion inside. Boom! And it blows the door off the safe. And in the distance, you hear this you're know, ringing. Mm-hmm. And you hear it first as a viewer of the film, and then the guys start going, oh, wait a minute. I hear an alarm out there, and he's like, oh, it must have set off the alarms. And you're like, I wouldn't have thought of that either. Yeah, Yeah, and it's also just as a point of direction. I mean, when he's looking out that, you know, you see the the shot of the street and the building. You know, it's at night, and there's a few people walking around. It's like an Edward Hopper painting. It is, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable. I mean, it's like, wow, you know. Just like the early, one of the first shots in the film when Sterling Hayden's walking like in this desolate sort of warehousey part of town, yeah. and a cop goes by and he kind of goes behind a, uh, a, a pylon on the loading yeah. dock. Yeah, and he just sort of hides. It's like a great, just amazing direction. And it really anyway. looks like they shot it early in the morning. Yeah. It just has this yeah. hazy, and it's downtown. I think they shot it all in L.A. It was supposed to be, I think, Chicago, a mid, say, unnamed Midwestern city. Yeah, but River City. I'm going to guess Chicago. I recognize some space, some shots in there some places like you could see uh, city hall a little bit in one shot mm-hmm. so they were they were uh, doubling some places in downtown la for chicago <laughs> and then i like to um so here they are they know the alarms are going off they know that it's timing is tight and yet they keep going for more and more it's that greedy thing of like they got the diamond got a lot of diamonds but they're should we keep going yeah get some more yeah get but some more like get keep the consensus going. from the guys it's like what yeah. do you think it's like i'm willing to keep going it's let's like keep okay going. me too let's get the rest of and them so, so as every great heist goes wrong <laughs> they just get greedy and then they lose their timing and everything goes to shit oh, and the night watchman shows up a little bit earlier yep. than he was supposed to and and you yeah. think they're making their getaway, and then, you know, they slug the, the night watchman, and, of course, his gun goes off accidentally shooting one of them. Yeah. Yeah. They shoot and Sterling Hayden. No, it shoots no, they the, shoot the safe Oh, no, it shoots the safe cracker. That's yeah. Right. Um, the family man. The guy, who's, right. the guy who's most sympathetic, really. Louis Ciavelli, I think is yeah. Yeah. Louis. Ciavelli. Yeah. yeah. But he's the one who's got the the wife and the kid at home. I like who how didn't want to do it originally. I, I also liked how I liked the shot. whole electric eye thing. Yeah, it, that was like very cool that they you know did that and they kind of kept to it. Like you know, like you got to get under there. You know, yeah. the actors did it. So they all slide on the floor underneath the electric eye. Yeah, it was it was a classic for the time. It was a very high tech, I guess, a, a high tech um, safe cracking heist using thing. You know, using the technology of you know the nitroglycerin and the drill he had he had this cool drill and mm-hmm. and uh it was probably very you know very mission impossible of its time you know i think 70 years ago i mean like how many movies were made like that before then you know yeah. as far as yeah. how to pull off a, a caper like really that. procedural right yeah yeah and it's just it's still compelling today you know because of course we've seen you know modern you know oceans 11 all these kind of things are super super high tech with laser beams Mission and impossible. this and that but this seems much more like okay this is i can i get my head around what yeah. they're trying to do they're going to knock out some bricks they're going to go open up a door they're going to do this it know. almost feels like something you could do like i could do that i could rob this bank well it's it's the it's the path you know you, they go through the manhole down into the sewer down into the access tunnel break through a certain spot in the wall with these bricks go through there unlock the side door to let the guys in then they have to go under the electric eye yeah and they have to get through the safe which was like this four level safe and uh, then they have to get the, the all these diamonds and jewels and then they have to figure out what to do with those and that's where the um where the corrupt uh, attorney uh, lawyer comes in, their friend who is going to connect them with some fences who are going to help them get rid of these things and sell them off. And, but he wealthy attorney um, who's, who's going to help them out. He's got his own little scam going on with him. He's actually in real life. And, you know, unbeknownst to them, uh, he's broke and he needs money, so he's got to figure out a way to scam these guys. So he's got this plan where he's going to say, "I'm going to fence the stuff for you," 
but I'm going to just say, oh, I don't, guys, I don't have the money right now. So just trust me with it. And you know, they're not going to, you know, you shouldn't have the jewels on you because you just got out of prison. So he was making perfect sense. And it's always in these heist movies, like whether it's art or jewels, like yeah. it's like, what, how do you get rid of this stuff to make the money? That's always like the weakest link. Because That's part of the heist though. All you know? of the, the publicity about the stolen stuff, no one's going to want to buy it. Like that's always, that's always what happens to these things is people get the loot and don't know what to do with it. Right. Yeah. But then when everything starts to go upside down, um, the doc has a, uh, a kind of great a, idea with any, he, he, he seems to have it ready. He seems to like plan he B. Had, he plan B was ready when, when, you know, that guy you know pulls out a gun and, and shoots somebody and it, it's like, okay, this is gone haywire. We got to go to plan B. Which the attorney's, is, the attorney's, um, bad guy friend, this detective guy yeah. who he sort of pulls in on his end of the scam ends up, you know, jumping the gun and pulling a gun on the guys. And the, the attorney is like, no, no, no. You know, but then, of course, Sterling Hayden, being the tricky hooligan, ends up shooting him. So now they have a dead body. <laughs> dead body, and now Dix is wounded. Yeah. Yeah. So they have to dump the body in the river. So that's why I think it's Chicago or a yeah. body, body of waters nearby Lake Michigan. And then they have to do this insurance scam where they try to get Ugh. like 25% on the dollar. Now, all just of a sudden, a, all this effort is, is like losing value quickly. Losing yeah. value, but you just got to get out of it some way. Yeah. So he, he come, the doc has this idea, let's make a deal with the insurance company because you know the insurance company doesn't want to pay you know these millions of dollars or however much the, the jewels were worth to the place where they were stolen from. But they would be happy to take to buy the jewels for much less than they would have to pay the, the company. <laughs> right. They buy them back sight on, you know, no, no questions asked. And uh, it's what a great um, little tricky thing. <laughs> yeah. It was like, now- <laughs> it's like, of course they would, of course an insurance company would rather do that. Yeah. Insurance. Everybody's shady. Everybody's trying to scam, you yeah. know, that's course- what the thing about this movie that I love so much is that it really shows the dark side. You know, you've got a, you've got a corrupt cop. You've got a corrupt attorney. You've got... Um, Insurance companies, which are trying to save money. On yeah. The, yeah. Why would they pay more? And they seem like just one of the bad guys. Yeah. But, of course, the cops find the body, right, in the yeah. river. And right so, away. all of a sudden, there's trouble. And he is associated the, with this attorney. Yes. He's a known associate. And the cops come, and they question him. And, of course, uh, they get nowhere with him, but they also question uh, Marilyn Monroe's character. Right. And she kind of gives up the ghost. Well, he's our, he told yeah. her, like, honey, you got to tell him. Yeah. You got to give me an alibi. Tell him I was here. Right, right, right. That's right. And so she tells him. And then they ask her. And this is sort of like the thing that everything is riding on. All she had to do was say, yeah, he was here. But the cops said, you better tell us the truth. You don't want to go to prison. And she's such a little girl. You know, yeah. she's such an innocent little childlike girl. She looks at him. She looks at her, you know, her uncle... Alon. Uncle Alon. They should not have been interviewing them in the same room. Right. That's true. I mean, yeah. <laughs> come on. But he yeah. says, you know, just tell them the truth. And she thinks he means it. Yeah. And she tells him the truth. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> and he, um, he, yeah, he he takes himself out of the equation in the next scene, which, oddly enough, was con- controversial in this film oh. when it was released because people felt like he avoided justice. He got yeah. the, he took the easy way out. Right. Yeah. And, uh, there's another little thing. One of the one of the things that I think there's hardly any flaws in this film, but if there's a flaw, there's one thing that has always bugged me about this movie, mm-hmm. and I think it had to be put in there. I think it was requested that John Huston put this in there. There's a corrupt cop in this who is um, who's very corrupt. You know, <laughs> he's like yeah. a bad cop, and I think. The film distributors, the film studios didn't want to have a film that was that dark. They didn't want to have a film that just had a corrupt cop in it because we don't really get to know many of the other cops. There's a chief of police and there's one scene which I think was kind of seemed a little shoehorned in there where the chief of police is talking to the to the guys, to the boys, the press. And he's talking about, yeah, there's, yes, we had a bad cop. He's in prison. But. Only one out of every hundred cops is bad. One and, out of a hundred. <laughs> and he turns on the, the dispatch radios, and you hear right. all these cops out there yes. working, and he said, all these boys are out there working, and 
they need our respect. And if we, if we didn't have them, what would we have? And he turns them off. Yeah. Silence. That's what we'd have. We'd have nobody protecting us on this. So it seemed like a little speech that was added in there just so yeah. they could go ahead and have this corrupt cop character. You might in there. be right. Yeah. Because that commissioner, I mean, that was the commissioner who was doing the that. commissioner. Yeah, yeah, the commissioner, and he he wasn't really in the movie until that scene, and maybe one scene before, yeah. when people were coming in saying, "I got to speak to the commissioner." Yeah, which yeah. was also kind of strange. I didn't really yeah. get that bit either. Like all these people he was coming in, in near the beginning when he's telling the cop, the corrupt cop, that he's failing. Okay, you know, because he let oh, the right. guy get out of prison right. without following him. He said, "You let him get get him away. You can't. Yeah. We can't follow him now. We don't know where he went." That's a good uh, see what bothered me. It's funny. The scene I thought you were going to say bothered you was the fact that the cops let that guy leave the room and go into a room by himself and open a door. Agree, and agreed. There is no yeah. way, like let alone the fact that they would think he would destroy evidence. Like they would let him go alone anywhere. It's but he's an really attorney. Yeah, he's an attorney, so he had that privilege. You know, I guess. Yeah, but he just. <laughs> and a cop did follow him into the room. It was way behind. Like but they was, let him yeah. sit at a desk with drawers. Like to me, if anything yeah. could have put on a gun, and shot him. Like it just seemed a little sloppy. But and that's the other okay. tragic element of that scene is that he writes this letter to his yeah. wife saying, "I'm sorry," but then he tears it up right before he kills yeah. himself. Yeah. It's like beautiful awful. handwriting, though. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's white male privilege. Right yeah, there. <laughs> Kathy. Yeah, <laughs> you get it. They get so. to walk into yeah. a room and open the yeah. drawers. Yeah, yeah, with a gun in it. Yeah, that's right. He could have turned around and shot the police officer that followed him right. in there, but. He wasn't a hooligan, <laughs> but it's a great it's a great movie. I mean, you know, it's just uh, it's necessary viewing in the, the film noir, or just a, as a, for any film. There's know, so it's, much it's, going on in yeah. this movie. There, every like we've been saying, every character has so much depth and history and and motive. You know, it's it's beautifully written. If you're going to write a movie, you you should watch this one first because it's it's a great example of a movie that doesn't have anything in it. That doesn't lead anywhere. It do, it tells you a story in a way that takes you on a journey, in a way that you you know what everything. I mean, you know the result of everything is the result yeah. of something that you saw happen, and it, there's nothing out of left field in it. Yeah. There's nothing that takes you by surprise. Like, wait a minute, how the hell did that? How did he? You know, and everybody has a backstory. Even the little incidental characters have depth. And, and all the little threads go somewhere. Yes. It's not like there's just dead ends everywhere. It's like they, they really tie it all together really well. And I think the last scene is, I'm not going to say what it is, but it's a beautiful last scene. It's so yeah. haunting. Mm-hmm. It and is. that's definitely like a, like worth watching to the very, very end because it's yes. so great. Yeah. And it's, it's the, yeah, maybe we shouldn't say what that last no, shot is. No, we don't need to say. We'll just tell people, make sure you watch that last scene. It's a great last shot. It's beautiful. One of Sterling Hayden's most. Goosebumps just talking about it. Heartbreaking <laughs> moments. Yeah. And it's shot so beautifully too, with the horses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know and, what you mean. And yeah. her and, and no just, more. No yeah. more. Are but they just, CGI? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Sorry>. Yes. <laughs> the first time they ever used it. No, it was cell animation back then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, let's turn to the other Sterling Hayden. Yeah, film. Yeah, we have another great film that came out six years later, 1956, directed by another master. Yep. Stanley Kubrick. What else? Did Everyone's he do? heard of that. Yeah. He did Killer's Kiss. Yeah. Uh, what else? I don't know, that's all <laughs> what I know. Else? <laughs> well, Stanley. Interesting thing about Stanley Kubrick and um, Sterling Hayden is that he had him in two of his movies. One of them was The Killing, and the other one is Doctor Strangelove. Right. Uh, and he was incredible in Doctor Strangelove. He's like everybody quotes him without even realizing they're quoting Sterling Hayden. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. He plays the classic conspiracy theory nutcase that. There, I mean, there's still people who talk like that. <laughs> yeah. Even though he was presented as a broad satire in Doctor Strangelove, but Sterling Hayden was so great at anything, anything he did, he was, he was, he brought a hundred percent to it. The cop in The Godfather, and he is in The, the Godfather. One, you know, yeah. So and Francis many Ford other Coppola films. and Stanley Kubrick and John Huston and so many others. And he wasn't really like I read reading up about it. He wasn't like acting. Wasn't like. His passion. He didn't enjoy it. He claimed he did not enjoy he acting. Was, he'd rather be like maybe deep sea fishing or I, I don't know what, it, you know, do, golfing or whatever else he would do. You know, that sailing. Was, sailing. That's he what was it a, was. He was a sailor. He, he, he envisioned himself as, as a sailor. Exactly. He, he thought of himself as a sailor who also acted. Right. That's crazy. But he was in great movies. And The Killing is, a, a, to me, it's um, 
It's a neat movie because 1956. I mean, even yeah. the opening credits don't look like movies from 1956. Right. Yeah, the credits are almost like Saul Bassish or something. They're just different, interesting shots of uh, the. You know, it takes place at a racetrack. It's another heist film, but it has to do with um, uh, stealing money. You know, two million dollars from this racetrack, which is I thought it was Santa Anita, but actually it was filmed up in. Um, like the Bay Area, up yeah. in uh, San something else, in the San Remo or something. But it's supposed to be, um, I think it's... Lansdowne, wherever that is. <laughs> that, that was the uh, name of the racetrack in the movie, Lansdowne. I think it might be right. made up and supposed to be Santa Anita because it takes place in L.A. Yes, it takes place in L.A., So, but it wasn't filmed in Santa Anita. It was filmed somewhere else. Right. Yeah. But... Um, well, I think it's interesting, too, in this movie that um, Jim Thompson, who wrote all that great hard-boiled fiction, yes. that he wrote a lot of, the, I guess, either all or most of the dialogue. Right. So it has that really great hard-boiled, oh, man, you know, really film noir great-sounding stuff. I mean, Jim Thompson wrote, like, The Killer Inside Me. That's probably yes. one of his most famous. So it really gets that hard-boiled crime feel to it, and I think that really helps to get that guy, because he's, like, the king of that. And Jim Thompson wrote The Nothing Man, I think. and. Yeah. And his his character, Jim Thompson's characters, are really classic noir. You know these mm-hmm. haunted tragedies. But well, there's like the, the relationship between uh, two characters, Elisha Cook, who plays. Uh, he works at the racetrack. He, he works in one of the back betting. Uh, you know what they call them? The uh, betting uh, counters. Yeah. And his wife, you know, this blonde gal who's just you know is not interested in him at all, just puts him down. And the back and forth. Dialogue the dialogue between, those between two them. is unbelievable, and it's it really Mar- Marie like, Windsor, Marie actually, Windsor, yeah, which like, we talked about before. She was in uh, Force of Evil, right? Oh, okay. And uh, but in this one, she plays her character. In this, is so great. Well, and it's so clearly like she married like kind of below herself, yes. like this total dweeb. Yeah, and so she's constantly like frustrated with him and not like dealing with him at all and cheating on him left and right. And, and he worships awful. her. Oh. Yeah. To, to, and he believes in her. You know, he yeah. thinks that but there's just the, more to her. The dialogue is so rapid fire back and forth. They're not, they can't really listen to what they're saying. It's like so fast, you yeah. know, which is interesting. They're not really reacting what they're saying. They're just talking. Yeah. And Elisha it's Cook a, is, uh, Elisha, Elisha Cook Jr. is always so great. He's in so many movies. Yeah. And he's excellent in everything he did. And in this movie, um, he plays the... He plays the sort of tragedy guy, the the tragic sort of loser that everybody knows this woman that is with him. They know what's going on. Yeah. It's obvious, but he doesn't know. And he, he's that guy. And he's the one he's involved in this because he wants to make the big score, get out of this crummy apartment and have ton, you know, tons of cash and be able to run away with his his wife, but and of course, buy her things. Of course she has other ideas. Yeah, you know. Well, of course um, she's got a boyfriend. Yes, <laughs> the very handsome yes. uh, Vince uh, Edwards. Yeah, who was uh, Doctor Ben Casey later, That's right. you know, in the sixties. Ah. But um, but Elisha Cook is so perfect in this role, and he's another actor um, like Sterling Hayden, who apparently did not really enjoy acting. Hmm. He, um, from what I read about him, he lived up in the out in the woods somewhere. He had a house like out out of L.A. And uh, his agent would basically get him gigs, and he would, they would say, you know, he would come down out of the mountains and do his work and not really make too many friends, not really talk to people on the set too much, but just do his work. And when he was done, it was like, bye, and he'd disappear again. Kind of like that character from uh, Andy Griffith Show. Was it the uh, Ernest Tubbs or whatever the guy is? Ernest T. Bass. Hey, Ernest T. Bass. <laughs> He'd just come down and throw rocks at people and then leave. <laughs> well, maybe not like Woo-hoo. him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey Andy. Uh, but and there's uh, and then another great character um is Timothy Carey. Timothy Carey. I knew you were going to say him next. <laughs> I it, he is like, you know, he played the the sharpshooter, the guy that has, you know, the rifleman. Yeah. And he barely he barely moves his lips when he's talking. Yeah. He's not talking like that. And it's very much like Benicio del Toro from The Usual Suspects. Yeah. I think. In oh, yeah. fact, he 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 channeled Timothy Carey. Was an yeah. interesting guy. Yeah. He made like a movie in the early '60s. Frank Zappa did the movie, the music oh. for it. Frank Zappa called it the worst movie of all time. Yeah, <laughs> oh, that's no. right. Yeah, but it was it is a weird movie. It's a weird movie, and he was a weird dude. Like he was fired from uh, Paths of Glory, uh, Stanley Kubrick's next film, because yeah. he was making a just being a pain in the ass on set. Yeah, and Kubrick said you're out. You oh. know, so. Well, this this movie I felt Timothy like Carey. Oh, yeah. 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 This Timothy. movie was a little more complicated, I think, heist-wise than the the first film we talked about because 
the there are a lot of moving parts. Right. It's a weird idea. Like the whole thing is is it's just one of those that there's so many huge areas where this could go wrong. It didn't feel tight at all because it's easy in your head to go break into a bank, take the jewels, leave. This one was super complicated. Well, I think it's because I don't think the St- Sterling Hayden's character in this movie is necessarily that smart. I mean, he's right. pulling, pulling, he's pulling this off, but there's like, okay, he, they're going to shoot a horse. Yeah, yeah, during a race. During the a, whole plot plot is to st- okay. shoot a horse during a race as a distraction. So yeah, so, so they, they could steal money from the the money counting room, where I guess they keep all the money to pay pay out bets. And he's not shooting from some like hidden sort of bunker. He pulls in this little two seat roadster. In a sports car, very. <laughs> pulls down the windshield. You know, there's the, the parking attendants like in ten feet away. Right. He pulls out this rifle. It's all very weird, but it, I don't think it's well. Th- it's well thought out in a certain way, but it's not thought out. And he knew it's going to fail. I mean, even at the very end. And just me you know, being, the, you know, the animal lover was super stressed when I discovered that this whole plan is about shooting a horse. Yeah. Well, so they're criminals, like, Kathy. Yeah, but shooting people's one thing. Yeah. <laughs> but the fact they were going to kill a horse, an innocent horse, Red Lightning, who had nothing to do with anything. And he was winning, too. He was winning. Yeah, that's but right. That was the whole point, right? Red Lightning. But yeah. I just think it was interesting, too. They, they had some, like, some very specific animals placed throughout this film, which you don't see a lot of animals in these movies. But they had a lot of footage of like the horses coming mm, yeah. in and off the track. They had the um, the gunman, the sniper or you know sharpshooter who was standing there with this puppy, like this conspicuously. Like, here they were. He's got this adorable little black and white puppy, and they're talking about this horrible crime they're going to commit. And right. he's just sort of sitting there with this puppy, la la la. And then you're you know the whole context of the film about shooting a horse right. is a whole other thing. And then we get to, as we get through the plot, where there's a parrot that, that figures very prominently, which I thought was such an interesting visual, where uh, they're in the room. This is um, when he goes to confront yes. his girlfriend. Um, you can give me the names. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they shoot. They One guy gets shot, and the parrot cage comes crashing down with the parrot in it. And That's then the right. parrot's in the cage just pecking away at the floor inside yeah. this, this cage. And it was just fascinating to me to see, like, here's this animal inside a cage. And he's still just going about his life. Right. And there's got to be some sort of strange analogies going on about these animals inside this construct. That That's interesting. I never noticed, really noticed that about. Yeah. This. It stuck the... out to me because you just don't see animals in these things. Maybe yeah. a cat. And you know, Kubrick's it, it, it's in there for a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's not going to be there unless it's there for a reason. Kubrick's always talking over my head. <laughs> well, there's another construct. Damn going, him. Going back to your point about like, you know. It's not really, it's chronological, but they go back, you know? Yeah. So like there's a narrator who says, the hard boiled narrator. 20 minutes earlier, so-and-so <laughs> went into the bus depot and blah, blah, blah. They you know? showed everyone kind of getting in position. Yes. And so, so you're sort of following each little thing down. The whole movie sort of geared toward everyone arriving at the racetrack. So you get to see the whole process of everyone getting to this one part where they're going to kill this horse. Well, and, and all, <laughs> it, it all starts, yeah, because they're, they, they, they say we're going to get this guy who's a... Uh, boxer slash chess guy, right. this big <laughs> wrestler dude who was really in real life a real wrestler and a and real chess player. Real chess player. <laughs> That's and hilarious. Later in life, he died at age seventy-seven, going into a New York chess parlor, and and th- three kids started. You know, they had an interaction, and he got uh, mad. He tried to fight them, and they killed him. Yeah, uh, shot him dead. That's horrible. Had a ch- you know, so this guy sort of lived that life. It was very yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I thought that fight—that was the one part of the movie. I thought that fight was like, all of a sudden it turned into this weird sort of wrestling kind of kind of was, com- comic. It was, it was weird. You there know? was some weird humor, like <laughs> even when the sharpshooter arrives at the racetrack and then the the guard at the gate um, is so like overwhelmed that this guy's actually being nice to him because yeah. he gave him like just, a twenty dollar bill. Or yeah. Something. So he's yeah. like, so he just keeps coming over, going, "Hey, how's it going?" He's just like, "Get out of here!" It's like, "How's it going?" So he keeps trying to come over and bother the guy. So every time as a racetrack, as the thing starts happening, and then here comes the guard again, and he's just like, "Get out of here!" Well, you know, it's <laughs> he also, hurts the guy's feelings, but he makes himself very conspicuous at that point. Yeah. It's also mm-hmm. interesting about that scene for um, the times was the guy was black. He's a black mm-hmm. actor playing the 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 guard yeah. at the parking lot. So there's the scene where Timothy, where he comes over saying, Oh, I just wanted to say, you know, he was being nice. And Timothy Carey sort of yells at him, get lost, you know? Yeah. And, and you see the look on the, on the black actor's face where he's like, and I think he actually says, okay, man, I get it. You well, know? he says, no, yeah. he says the N word. 
Oh, yeah, oh that's right. right. Yeah, that's, that's right. The, that was the okay. You know, because right, they was, had that that dialogue where he was like, oh, "Most people aren't nice to me." Yeah, yeah, super sad. And that was James Edwards, who was in the Phoenix City story, yes. uh, which is another oh, film okay. noir. And he's really a good actor. Yeah, you know, even his little roles, he's interesting to watch. But anyway, yeah. But there was a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit of that a in little there commentary. too. A little commentary on mm-hmm. on uh, the way people get treated sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So here's this guy. He's got like a good job, and he's doing an honest living. And here's you know this white guy who's a total shyster. Yeah. Trying to. He break. doesn't make it out of the parking lot though. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Bonehead. <laughs> I'm gonna drive this little two seat roadster. Yeah. That uh, you know, it's like a ninety percent of my body is outside. It's of like the a car. convertible. <laughs> so stupid. Yeah, uh, at least I'm no Timothy Carey, and I'm just crazy. Yeah. yeah. So they do have a shot of the horse getting shot, but it looked like he. It, it wasn't too explicit. Like it was just like a horse stumbling. I think it's stock footage of a horse. I falling. know, but it was still like I was dreading that scene I the know. whole time. But they unfortunately they didn't overdo it, and they didn't show it later or anything. But it, for it, you animal lovers out there who yeah. are worried about this, I was. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, won't go through the heist. It's just really interesting, and I've talked about this on other podcasts. I'm going right to the ending, but it has one of my very favorite endings. We talk about favorite endings. Yes. It has my favorite ending. That's it's right. another great ending it's with just, Sterling Hayden. Yeah, That's it's just right. and just the last shot really is just is great. Yeah. I, love, I love how movie just sort of ends, and that one just ends again you know? with animals. Again, yes. have like a dog. That's right. You're is right. The crux of the. That's really. That's a very I had never good noticed point. that before. That's a really interesting point now because so the funny. ending in the film is something that happens because of a dog. Yeah, because of an animal. Yeah. So, kind of ha- so I airport. keep wondering, like, what I'd like to dig deeper into at some point and try and figure out what what Kubrick was trying to sort of imply with so many animals placed so specifically. Because animals are not easy to work with. No. You know, it's not easy to. It's not a thing that you would just say, "Oh, let's just have a dog." You know, you have to right. really make a conscious decision and effort to put an animal. I kind of wonder if it's sort of like you have all these corrupt characters, and the animals are all innocent. Like they have like this sort of pure innocence next to this corruption, and it's right. kind of you know they exploit animals for whatever reason, but they're they're kind of like you know just not even by choice, but they're all domesticated animals too. We haven't, we didn't see any like wild birds or, right. you know, anything right. like that. We saw specifically pets. like dogs and pets and stuff and like that. And sort of being exploited and, yeah. and like the horses are, I mean, mm-hmm. regardless of how you feel about uh, horse racing, they're basically horses being forced to work for people. Yeah. And the bird is in the cage right. and, um, the, and the dog is being held, you know, little dog at the end guy. is, yeah. And the dog <laughs> That dog had a fruit. Was it inside a little bag or was it just, it was on a leash? No, it was the old lady was like, oh, oh she was holding them. it. She's going to take him little on the Timmy. plane with her. You know, yeah. That's right. That's right. It was a little back in the days when you, yeah, yeah, back in the days when the airports were like, you know. Just go walk, ahead. Yeah, take, go ahead. Just walk out. Walk you know. to the plane with your dog You and could your take your peacock on board if you yeah. needed to then. While you're smoking. <laughs> but, you know, another reason why I think it wasn't well thought out is like after he does, after the heist, he's just got a big sack of bills. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah. he, but what does he do? He goes to a pawn shop and buys some shitty suitcase the with, with like the locks that don't even work. The, lock, break the locks weren't even working, and he puts you know, and it's so you go okay. He really didn't think this out, so he yeah. kind of deserved at the end. He couldn't even check the I mean, to put the bag on the plane with him. He had to check it. Yeah, he didn't even realize he wasn't going to be able to carry it on the plane with him. And well, the, he I think he could have checked it, but he sort of pulled it back from her. You know, she wanted to check the bags. He's like, no, I'm I'll, I'll, no. He wanted to carry it. Yeah, like, he, he didn't want to check it. He wanted to carry and it. And the guy says, it's too big. It's too big yeah. you have to so he puts it on and of so course he didn't you know, even plan that out didn't plan it out the right suitcase <laughs> and, yeah the right should, have, should have invested in a belt around <laughs> the suitcase and the uh the baggage handler puts it on a very tippity top yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> rickety, rickety. <laughs> like if i saw that i would have just run just, oh, yeah. you know but anyway it's uh i love that movie it's but a really fun movie. one to watch again because you it's we're talking about the flashback aspect of the kind of thing that you saw in movies like Pulp Fiction, where you where you go back and you see the same thing happening, but from a different point of view, which is always fun. You know, it, it, like you see the heist from from this person's point of view, and then you know rewind the clock and you go back, and now you're seeing what this other person was doing. You're yeah. seeing the same events happening but from a different person's perspective and right. now you know why that door was unlocked when he went over there yeah. and who yeah. was on the other side and it's it's just so cleverly constructed you know that kubrick probably built little models of the rooms and yeah. storyboarded everything really carefully 
And it was like the first, and there's a couple of scenes where you can see where Kubrick is going to go as a director. You know how the methodical shots of his later films, you know, Full yeah. Metal Jacket and The Shining and Barry Lyndon. There's that shot where everybody gets, you know, killed, you know, gets right. shot. It's, yeah. like, it's an amazing, <laughs> cool sort of like pan. Yeah. That's sort of like, oh my God, everybody died. It was, it's, it was a cool direction. He so. was, a, Kubrick was a, started off as a still photographer yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, it was really into, um, you know, composition and, still images and was was really great with uh composing shots i mean i know he had a cinematographer on on this film but um which but he, maybe look up but didn't he really wasn't he a photographer for like new york newspapers wasn't he like a stringer photographer in the 40s yeah and because i've seen some books of his photography and he did like uh Celebrity photography, you know, celebrity shots or, you know, the debutantes or the, you know, uh, the New York High Society. And they're beautiful shots. They're really great. But yeah. they're just standard newspaper shots. But uh, yeah. he took them to an extra but level. But you can, you can tell that somebody was uh, composing these shots. Yeah. He also did, a, um, interestingly, some photographs of horse races that were published. Ah. And he did a story about horse races. So that's probably why he knew a bit about it and had an interest in it. And his DP on this was... Um, Lucian Ballard, hmm. who, um, well, let me look him up here. <laughs> well, another thing I think was kind of interesting while we're looking that up did is... a bunch of great stuff. He oh, he okay. shot he shot a lot of um, uh, film noir type stuff, but nothing too. I mean, he did the Wild Bunch later, Ballad of Cable Hogue, mm-hmm. The Getaway. Um, uh, so this is one of his earlier ones because those are later yeah. movies. Yeah. You know, the Killing was maybe his tenth movie or something oh, like okay. that, but a lot of them aren't aren't. They're not a lot of really big films. But I have a feeling Kubrick was probably in most more in charge uh, than his cinemat- cinematographer, knowing what I what little I know and have read about Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. We've done a few film noir movies. One thing I noticed: there's always one of these female characters, and they literally lo- all look the same, exact same. <laughs> of this one dewy-eyed girl who's totally enthralled with one of the male leads and it's just super like I'll do anything for right. you anything oh, yeah. and they just literally look it's one of those things like we were talking about where Marilyn Monroe had no life outside the room like they are literally just there to like do what they need to do for this man and follow him everywhere we had it in you know the first the kit we had an asphalt jungle we had it in the other two films Force of Evil that yeah. we talked about in another episode yeah and the, the and, and Colleen Gray plays right. you know and she's only in it in the very beginning and at the very end yeah. And she was like just waiting and around. And she's just like following him around like a yeah. puppy. Like, yeah. I'll do anything for you. Like, it's just so, so much of these characters in these films. It's str- they're not the femme fatales. They're more like the, the good girl on the side who is there just to basically move along with the man, but not any challenge or anything. They're mm-hmm. the kind of archetype of, of, of the character that, that I think a lot of directors used in their films to give you somebody to feel sorry for like yeah. the these bad the bad guys influence you know the bad influence and they're the kind of character that you really want to reach out to and say look listen do not they're go the with innocent him. victim don't go with him yes <laughs> it's like they're bad it's like no yeah. but i like the bad and she's they're always so innocent and sweet mm-hmm. and they're always the ones saying they're always like don't do it you know, give it up, give yep. up that life, and let's just go somewhere. And just... and they all look exactly the same. Yeah, I know. <laughs> when I saw it, when I watched these films, going her again? <laughs> what is she doing in this? But you know, that's just that's just part of what what film noir does. You know, it was another. Just this is completely off topic, but there was another actor uh, who was a was a, you know Vince Edwards, the guy who comes in, the boyfriend who wants to come in. Right. One of the guys that he comes in with is this actor Joe Turkell. And that's he's right. been a bunch of Stanley Kubrick oh, yeah. movies. He was the oh. bartender in The Shining. Yeah, he was. Oh, a, that's funny. He was yeah, uh, the same. Mr. Tyrell in Blade Runner. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So I remember seeing him. Oh, that guy is familiar. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, early Kubrick stuff, and it's eighty-four yeah. minutes. It's not a three-hour marathon. It's a great movie. heist stuff. Like yeah. when you when you really want to see heist movies, this is great ones. These this is why I feel like a lot of heist films are imitating these films. Oh, I they think want they that are. hard-boiled. Sort of super lean, you know, just you know, heist gone wrong kind of, you know, plot line. It's just really well done, and it's fun to watch procedurals. Mm-hmm. It's like I was telling you guys about a French film that I really like um, called The Hole, but the the title of it is um, a French, the French word for the hole, which I can't remember right now. <laughs> but, but it's a French film. 
But it's about it's a prison escape heist kind of a thing, and and uh, you know, in in addition to these um, thievery heists where they're stealing jewels or money from the bank, and they have to do these these complicated plans, and everything has to work perfectly, and there's a lot of suspense involved in every piece working properly. The um, prison escape heist is another genre you know there's a lot of great prison escape movies and i think this french film is one of the early ones i'd like to see that one it's a great procedural you know it shows how you have to do this this and this and this and this has to work and this has to work and the guys try to do it you know and and uh what happens it's a hard film to look up because there's a lot of whole movies apparently yeah (laughs) i'm looking at going oh there's one 2009 one 2001 don't look at this yeah. yeah, I wish I could remember the French title, but I don't speak French. Le right. hole. Le hole. hole. We'll probably God. be talking about that one, too. We're so stupid. We'll learn, we'll learn to say it. it the it. alternative t- title is... Uh, I won't say it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Oh, no. There you go. What does anyway. this podcast turn into? <laughs> But yeah, the killing is a is definitely worth watching. It's a you know, another thing about the killing and Asphalt Jungle is, and I know this may sound condescending to our listeners, but le trop, le trop, le yes. trop. Well done. <laughs> but if you, wanna, I can use Google. <laughs> but about these movies, um, anyone who's afraid of watching a movie from the fifties, the forties, or whatever, and we're not going to steer you wrong. We're not going to steer you towards any of those sort of you know, lame melodramas that you, you may imagine. <laughs> and we would let you know if we were steering you wrong, we'll let you know. Yeah, we'll tell you. Like, if don't, we're telling you just that, don't. Yeah. These are classics. They're fast moving. They're incredibly well made. The writing is sharp. You have to be on your toes. This is not lazy yeah. filmmaking. Yeah. And they're kind of contemporary in a lot of ways. A lot of uh, modern filmmakers still, you know, still obsess over these movies and study them. Well, you I can, think... I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm interrupting. But the, 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 in the acting style, you know, there's a there's certain places in history, in the history of cinema, where the acting style kind of changes from one style to another, and you can see during certain eras that this overly, in the early days, it was like, oh, you know, people were acting to the back rows because yeah. they were all yeah. stage had acting. been on stage. Yeah. And then there were actors after that who were who were doing it because that's what they had seen in movies that they grew up with. Right. And then during a certain part in the late 40s and the 50s, I think it started going towards things. And I think in Asphalt Jungle, you see that. It's where characters were starting to become a, a little bit more interested in realism. And I think the acting became a lot more sophisticated not that the characters were sophisticated characters, but that the style of acting was was sophisticated. Like we were talking about Asphalt Jungle, the character who plays Cobby. He's um he's a, he's not acting to the back rows. He's subtle, but he's this yeah. little backroom guy. You get the real feeling that that guy lives there. Mm-hmm. He's a he's a dirty. He looks like he probably smells bad, you know. Yeah. And he's sweaty, and he's. <laughs> He there's a few times where he like we do here because we're not scripted, we kind of stumble over our words sometimes, and I love to see that in movies yeah. where people go, y- 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 yeah, but y- y- you can't do that. You know, it- it's it- it- you know, it's yeah. this it's this realistic kind of delivery. Like he doesn't know what to say. Yeah, yeah. and um, that's when you start seeing it happen in in the fifties and and uh, with directors like John Huston and. Um, Stanley Kubrick, you know, yeah. where they were, they were pushing it, pushing it with the acting, pushing it with the visuals, with the editing, you know. Location shooting. I mean, it's a lot more like a lot of this stuff you see like, okay, this is what it looked like in 1955 Los Angeles or wherever it's shot. I mean, it's really cool. It's, it's not just, it's interesting. Hey, look at the, the old buildings, but you feel like you're there. It's, it's like watching less, those. It's it's not stage bound. Right. It's not that kind. It's not of the thing. back lot. You no, know? it feels like a lot more. You know, on location stuff. One thing I'll tell you something. I've worked on a million back lots, and I can tell you one thing. I can always spot a back lot. And there's something people say. You know, like what is it about this that just looks fake? I can tell you what it is. I'm going to reveal a secret oh, right now. What is it? It's going to make you watch movies differently because whenever you see a back lot, you're going to go, oh, that's a back lot. This is going to ruin movies. It's going to ruin movies for you. So fast forward if you don't want to know what the older, secret is. Older movies. 
But when you see real location films, and some people take backlots, and I know set dressers and production designers who have tried really hard to make backlots look real, but they forget one thing. When you see real locations, there are utility poles and power lines. Mm. Yeah. And a lot of times when you see backlots, there's no utility poles or power lines hmm. in the background or going from the house to the to the pole, you know, the cable line or the phone lines or the power lines going to the house. Uh, you don't see utilities in, in old oh, backlot movies. You, sometimes they'll stick a mailbox in there. Yeah. Or, or a lamppost. Or the lamppost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's lampposts. Lamp yeah, yeah. But the... Um, but, Ugly things like utility poles or those power boxes on the corners yeah. of the streets, yeah. those things that we ignore, and we feel like we don't even we don't even really see them anymore. Yeah. But you know when they're not there. But when they're not there, yeah. your brain knows. Your brain knows. Yeah. Thin slicing. Interesting. It's a like sort it. of an uncanny valley thing. That that's oh. what that's. I think it's my theory anyway. That's what makes us read something as a backlot without really knowing why it looks like a backlot. Yeah. You mean it's fake? It's fake. I'll never oh. look at that Hyundai commercial again. Damn anyway. it. <laughs> but there are some people, I've actually known some production designers who will actually stick um, you know, power lines in, in production design, and it's difficult. It's really hard to do it because it's hard to get it right. Well, I'll mention this movie that we, uh, that we didn't talk about this podcast, but a future one called Sweet Smell of Success, which is right. filmed in New York City in like the mid-50s yeah. by James Wong Howe, who yes. is a classic mm. cinematographer. It makes New York look amazing. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it makes it dark and seedy and kind of weird, and, uh, but you see all the old places, the old legitimate you know, Toots Shores and the Copacabana, yeah. all these... Right clubs that were the thing back then it was just really cool to watch it you know and that was partly due to the technology too one of the things that makes the um technology i mean that makes the the feeling of films seem like they changed around that time was because you didn't really you weren't bound to the stage anymore by all these giant cameras and giant lights you could the cameras and the lenses got to the point and the lighting got to the point where you could transport them in a truck you could take them out into the streets and it was a little bit easier. It was still difficult back then, but it was a little easier to shoot on real locations. And and also back then, um, the people in the backgrounds, there wasn't a whole lot of issues with uh, getting you know, releases from everybody who walks through a scene. Mm-hmm. And also people were less, um, less used to seeing filmmakers making films in the streets. So a lot of times people would just keep walking. Yeah. Or sometimes I they look that. over to the camera. Yeah, yeah like, there's in some of these scenes, you know, if there's a famous celebrity. It's Tony Curtis is walking the streets of Manhattan, and you'll see him look at him, and they're like, "Yeah, there's people. Is, are they extras? Or are they just sort of pe- people walking <laughs> through? Funny. You know, it's." And back then, I yeah. think you could get away with just having the people walk through. Yeah. And uh, but now, when you do it, of course, everybody's got to wave and go, "Woo!" You know, right. everybody yeah. wants to, you know, hog the camera. But yeah, there's a bunch of old movies. Um, Gosh, I can think of there's one shot that I always like in uh, an old movie. Um, it's called The Indestructible Man, and uh, it's got Lon Chaney Jr. in it. <laughs> and he's there's a scene where he's walking past Angel Flight, which is in downtown LA, mm-hmm. you know, Bunker Hill. And he's he's inflicted, and it's a long story. He's like turned into this indestructible kind of monster. So he's got to walk down the street in this weird way. And, uh, it looks sort of like he's harried and haunted and crazed. And you can tell that these people walking down the street are going, holy crap, that's Lon Chaney Jr. walking <laughs> over. There's, a, there's shots of him walking through downtown L.A., and there's people that are looking at him and and kind of pointing at him. And it kind of works because he looks a little bit nuts. And, and <laughs> you, you, you can imagine that people might look at this weird guy yeah. walking down the street. But you know in real life they're looking at him because it's Lon Chaney Jr. That's really funny. <laughs> We'll have to watch that one, too. But that's when films started to change, yeah. when they started being able to shoot on locations. And that yeah. went into the 70s, too. In the 70s, you know, crime dramas are so um, gritty and realistic because they shot them in so many locations. A lot of production designers would just walk into a like a pool hall in The Hustler or something or in some other movie or into a bar. And a lot of production designers, I imagine, would just look around and go, 
okay, this is good. Let's shoot it like this. Yeah. Well, there's that scene, you know, seance on a wet afternoon where it's uh, Richard Attenborough is just basically walking through, you know, walking through traffic oh, yeah. Yeah. all over the place. I said, that must be just sort of like guerrilla filmmaking. It, it is. must yeah. be just running around and... Real people in their yeah. cars yeah. and there's, yeah. you know, ooh, is he an actor walking to... <laughs> hit by a, you know, double-decker bus yeah. kind of a thing, you know. You can sometimes see, like, when you see some of these things, you can look down. If you look past the actors, you'll see, like, a bunch of people crowded yeah. where they've been stopped. You behind know? the barricade. I'm yes. trying to think of Looking. one movie where it was so obvious. It was some yeah. sort of car chase or something. Yeah. And it was like just tons of people like roped off on yeah. the sidewalk. You could tell they were like, don't come in. Yeah. So and fun. some of those movies are just so filmed in such a guerrilla style, like you said. It's like uh, there's like movies like Bullet or something where there's a couple of shots where the camera pans with the car. And it's so. It, it, back then they were a little bit less restricted and yeah. less rules. And um, you start to, that's why the 70s movies have this gritty edge to them, I think, because sometimes they film these car chases. They don't know if this guy's going to make that turn. So the camera is trying to follow the car and it whips off to the side and you see a a bunch of C stands over there and flags (laughs) and and lights just for a second. Yeah, that's really funny. But that, that edginess, I think, is one of the things I love about movies like that where you, you feel like, you know, they're shooting on, on a real location and that's a, I mean, for all practical purposes, that's a real car chase happening. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, this was fun. Yeah, there's two great like heist movies when you need them. Yeah, they're good. It's it's good stuff, and that's I hope people stuff. I hope people watch these movies that we yeah. that we're telling them to watch. <laughs> watch them. Well, either way, thanks for listening. Yeah. Let's talk about either them. way. Just at least listen. Yeah. yeah, we really appreciate it. Thank you. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can just check us out on Twitter at Cinemondo Pod. Yep. Correct? Yep. Or uh, Instagram at Cinemondo Podcast yep. and Facebook at Cinemondo Podcast. And also. you can email us at Cinemondo Podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. And you We're know all what? over the place. Let and we have a website. You, let us know movies that you like that you just want to hear us chat about, you know, kind of feel like you're in on the chat with us. Yeah. Yeah, please also, do. Yeah, we list also list our all of our social media on the listings for the podcast. So if you look at your phone or however you're listening, you'll see our listings. And I write a blog, which is so damn fun. Mark writes a blog. <laughs> you can find it on Cinema. And Kathy and Burke and certainly a blog away too. <laughs> it's a good blog. There's so much to do, but we should write right. more. Yes. Very cool. More things to come. All yes. right. So thanks very much for listening. Thank we have you. we have things we have things planned. <laughs> Exciting things. Yes. Coming soon. Prizes. But uh, <laughs> we're going to head out. We're out of here. Take care now. Good night, John See Boy. <laughs> Cinemondo signing off. Mm-hmm.